0: Good evening. Uh, welcome to The Mind Behind Leadership. My name's Graham Dobbin. What we're going to be looking at, this is a brand new show we started last week, but what we're going to be looking at is uh, leadership from a really practical point of view just over the next few weeks. It's probably one of those things that uh, I've been spoken about more than ever now. Everyone seems to have a view on what's leadership, what's good, and uh, what's not so good, what works, what doesn't work. And certainly what we've been going through over the last few months has been at the forefront of everybody's lips. We're viewing everyone around us in in times like this, of how they lead us, how they influence us and in what they do. Some people have shone, like Jacinda Ardern, who's the president of New Zealand. Others like Boris Johnson, who's been recently elected, uh, with a huge mandate to governors drop like a stone. This isn't a political program, but we need to be able to be able to, to look at these leaders and maybe assess them. So over the next weeks, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at business, it's sports, politics, and even the military. We've got some phenomenal guests lined up to give their perspectives on how this really impacts in our everyday life, um, where they're unique, where they maybe cross over with each other. Um, and biggest all is what really happens behind the scenes. You know, there's thousands and thousands of books about leadership out there. But we're going to be looking at what's a real practical application and what's happened, what's worked and what hasn't from real life experiences. So, welcome. My name's Graham Dobbin. As I said, I'm really lucky to be able to work with senior leadership teams all over the world. Um, in the last year, I've been working in the UK, USA, and Australia, and I've been working with some of the largest companies in the world: BMW, Roche, Google, WeWork. I'm gaining some insights in just how they make decisions the kind of pressures they're under and the kind of structures that they've got. But it also allows me to work with some smaller businesses here in New York. And what it's allowed me to do is gain some really great insights on phenomenal experiences of companies who have just found the real way, found the real value, authenticity uh, over the last few months. So we're going to be mixing in some some, um, some insights from all of these areas, and especially locally. So tonight, we have a guest. And that guest is a slightly different one from advertised. That guest is Rebecca Maxwell. Now, Rebecca uh, has extensive leadership background uh, in the UK and the US. Um, To give an idea, she was an assistant chief exec of an organization, a government organization of 4,000 people. But maybe what's really relevant at the moment is she was head of a contingency and continuity planning approach, emergency response, and go command for response for major incidents? So, we're going to really dig deep in tonight just to find out what this kind of thought process is going on around when everything else is happening. So, good evening, Rebecca. Hi, nice to be with you, Graham. Yeah, good to see you. Um, that's a big introduction. Four thousand people, assistant chief exec, emergency planning, gold command. Where did it all start? Did you did you know when you were when you were a youngster, were you lying in bed hoping that you could be uh, at the forefront of emergency planning?
1: Uh, it's probably safe to say no. That's not where I thought I would end up. Um, it's kind of one of those things that that came with the job that I got, um, being in charge of organisations, being senior in particularly public-facing government organisations learning how to contingency plan and how to deal
0: with emergencies in our communities was one of the things we were expected to be able to do. Did you, I know you probably didn't think about it in in that type of role, but did you always see yourself being some kind of leader? Um,
1: (laughs) uh, My sister would probably tell you that I used to boss her around a lot, so maybe. (laughs) Um, I don't know whether leader, I suppose I got a taste of it. early early on when I was at university and got involved in student politics then and that was probably the first time that I was asked to to manage something Um, so I managed the the introduction week, the orientation week for the university one of the years that I was there and I I loved it. I was actually quite shy before that and this really brought me out of myself and I found that I enjoyed working with teams, um, I enjoyed creating an impact for other people um, and it was just kind of fun. And I thought, yeah, I was, I was studying law at the time and I just couldn't see myself being a lawyer um,
0: sure. with dusty books. I just didn't, <laughs> didn't want that bit of it. So where was it? Where was this university? In Edinburgh. Okay. In Scotland. It's interesting. You say that you were shy. Uh, I, I don't know if you find this, You'll have, I know you'll have dealt with, with lots of teams. Lots of teams I deal with, I find that people have are kind of more introverted. Um, but become leaders, become that person of influence. Have you find that?
1: Yeah, um, well, I'm quite introverted myself um, by nature. Um, and it's, it's interesting because the typical leaders that we see and that we are kind of told about tend to be those charismatic leaders and they appear very extroverted. And a lot of the times they are, but there are other types of leaders as well. And one of the things that I've actually really enjoyed working on um, through and on through my career has been seeing that shift um, happen from you needing to be an upfront charismatic leader to an understanding that leadership is not about always leading from the front and it is about actually enabling other people to lead. Um, Always been a great believer in leadership at all levels and my kind of philosophy around it was
0: that we create the, the atmosphere where people can shine. Okay. We're going to come on to that a little bit later, how we can maybe spot a leader. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in your first role in student politics. That sounds like herding cats. <laughs> yeah?
1: It could be, yeah, it could be. Um, luckily, I had quite a hands-on brief, so mine was, was kind of less on the politics and more on the delivery side. So, first of all, I was organising this orientation week with hundreds of events hundreds, of thousands of new students. Um, keeping all of that moving along was, was tough going, but it was, it was a finite project. That was probably my first taste of project management. And then from there, I was, um, my role in politics from there was uh, managing the welfare services for students at the university and making sure that we got what we
0: needed. Give us just a bit of an idea. So I gave you a taste for it. You obviously enjoyed it. Give us a bit of an idea of just some of the leadership roles that you've done.
1: Uh, well, I've worked predominantly in health services to begin with, um, and I worked with kind of front-facing roles, so managing um, the porters that we have around our hospitals, or the admin staff, the reception staff, and um, so I did a lot of the, the managing those ancillary services that keep that keep a hospital running. Mm-hmm. Um, moved from that into managing projects and um, did quite a lot of work around what I now understand were called are called transformation projects. At the time, they were just things that we were doing. So changing the way our services were delivered, um, the processes we use, but also the buildings that we delivered them from. Um, and then moving from there into more corporate and strategic planning roles. Uh, so how does the organisation as a whole come together and um, Make sure that it's all pulling in the same direction. And then tran- then actually it feels like almost did that exact same journey again, moving into government, local government services. So we went from managing front-facing teams through to the,
0: the corporate and the executive role when the assistant chief exec. So what kind of, what kind of things were these front-facing teams? Let, let's bring some kind of picture to this. What kind of things were they providing? What, what kind of roles were, they, were, were, were your teams doing?
1: Okay, so in health, they were making sure that patients were in the right place at the right time. Um, mm-hmm. They were delivering a lot of those kind of backroom services that we, we don't often see as patients, but are essential to the way that the hospital runs. So delivering the mail, getting the food to the ward at the right time, cooking the meals, um, making sure that the booking system worked. So they were the, the admin staff and the reception staff who were managing
0: outpatient clinics, for example. Mm-hmm. So have you been keeping a real eye on kind of what's happening? Obviously, you know, and the, the, no doubt we're going to speak about this a little bit more. But the the health scare, the pressure on hospitals, especially in New York and field hospitals being up. That must have brought some of that home to you.
1: It's yeah, it did, um, and I was actually really surprised. I and mean, I've, I've been talking to a few people about. It and I thought that experience I had um, around. Managing health services, but also managing in emergencies. It was actually the last seal I thought that would carry forward. Um, But I did find myself automatically going back into that way of thinking as soon as the pandemic started. And you could see the pressure both on health services and then having worked also in local government services. So city council, city government services, and knowing the impact there would be on continuing to deliver Service essential services to our communities, as well as trying to manage all the restrictions that all the other businesses were managing as well, and knowing the dilemmas that um, people in charge of those those uh, organisations would be facing.
0: You mentioned ancillary services. I remember doing um, doing some work just a couple of years ago with WeWork about how engaging their staff and and we had um, different management things in there, but the Ancillary Services seemed to be the guys that were forgotten about a lot and, and did a lot of work with these guys, and the, it was it was phenomenal, the reaction, when people cared about them. How is the approach different when we're looking at porters, catering staff? You know, People make sure that the bookings are there but are absolutely critical to the hospital rather than maybe the medical staff.
1: Um, I don't know that it's... It's not so much that it's different, but I think when you're leading an organisation like that, it is, it's easy to see the um, high profile services and to think about them and the more kind of glamorous side. Um, any good leader of an organisation like that understands that what actually keeps the, um, the wheels turning is all of the parts of the, the organisation and actually including the stuff that you don't see and the stuff that doesn't feel that sexy. Um, so making sure that good recognition is being made to all of those services at a time when what the public see is, the, is, is that public-facing stuff. So sometimes as a leader, we were needing to go out of our way to make sure that all parts of the system felt appreciated and all parts were recognised for the contribution they made.
0: Uh, recognition's always up always there. When we talk about employee engagement, when we talk about what people want to hear... It's nine times out of ten, it's recognition. It's not things around money or, you know, money, that needs to be right. But it needs, you know, it's just recognising that people are doing a good job. Yeah. It's those little moments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that. And the other, the other side of it as well, that I would see, both in health and in local government, is recognition, yes, but also um, for everybody to understand the contribution that they were making. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always that other people valued it. It was actually that they valued it themselves and they could see. So, for example, um, that everybody, when we we're working in local government, um, the guys that went out and, and repaired the highways, if they really understood the impact that had on the economic health of an area, when the the organization was talking about the economy being a priority, they didn't then feel neglected. So, again, a lot of the work I did as a leader was helping people understand the contributions they were making and how that fitted in and how it was valued by the whole organisation.
0: Okay. So, one of the the things I'm hearing you saying is making sure that everybody feels part of the team. Everybody is part of it. We're going to go to a commercial break in just a moment, but what we'll do when we come back, one of the things I really want to dig down in is find out what... You see as a good leader. Who's kind of inspired you? What kind of things was it they did? Was it a certain person? And just what 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 kicked you on? And then we're going to get right in to this emergency planning because I'm really intrigued about what that what's involved with that and just kind of the differentials from every day to when you're in a situation of maybe crisis. So we're going to take a break now just for our commercials and we're going to be back just in a couple of minutes.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.
0: Back, it's uh, Graham Dobbin here with the mind behind leadership. I'm joined by Rebecca Maxwell this evening. Hi, Rebecca. Again, um, Hi. major question: Do you like the intro music?
1: <laughs> I was almost dancing. Along like, with I can it see then. you
0: dancing. So, i just. I just want to double check on that. So, we're thinking about leaders. We're thinking about you know what what drives us. Because I'm a great believer that when people take on important roles, when you know you you've obviously taken on some really significant positions. Other people have driven us there. Other people have maybe helped us see the way. Um, can someone come to mind? Is there a trait? Just just talk me around. What's been your influence?
1: Um, I suppose one of my early influences was actually a, a, a leader, a manager that I had myself, um, and he was a very generous person. He was he was actually one of these quieter leaders. Um, he definitely wasn't the charismatic lead from the front type of guy. A bit like myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the things i remember most about him were that he was very inclusive um in his style and um, very generous of other people's perspectives and opinions but the, the one that, that really stands out for, to me is when he took over as my manager i've been in a bit of a sticky place with the organization i I'd kind of not really been seeing eye to eye with a couple of people and um he was very clear that he didn't listen to what he was told. He listened to what he saw. Um, and he gave me very definitely the benefit of the doubt because I knew that I was I was out of kilter with people there. And I knew that he would be to- being told I was trouble. And he just allowed me to prove myself to him. Um, and I will always respect that. And I learned a lot from him about just how to, how to not be... Um, overly influenced by other people's opinions and to make your own mind
0: up. Isn't it interesting? We talk about influencing others. We talk about um, this being a large part of leadership, and yet we're now talking about somebody who's influenced you who wasn't influenced by others, who deliberately kind of blocked that off. How difficult must that be?
1: Uh, it is difficult. Um, and it's, it's almost human nature, I think, to, um, to and, and we need, need to, to an extent, listen to what's around us. But I think the important lesson that he taught me was that it's about doing that and then making your own mind up and looking for all of the evidence. Um, so not being biased. Uh, and this we'll, we'll come on to this later when we're talking about emergency management, uh, not being biased by um, any one particular um input. So yeah, so I learned a lot from from working with him. Um, and he had a really great way of understanding and valuing
0: relationships and leadership as well. I, I'm curious, one of the words that you used was generous. Um, how did that show up in his traits?
1: Um, I think first and foremost it was never about him. It was always about the team. Um, and about the result that we were trying to achieve. Um, so I worked with him in um, some of the planning functions for the, the health um, body that we worked with. Um, there was no ego to him. Um, and But he was also very generous in terms of listening to other people's perspectives. And he would invite a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and a lot of um, views from others before he would then uh decide on the way forward and it, it never felt like he was deciding it felt like we were deciding um, great great team leadership
0: here's the thing this is the stuff the kind of stuff we can't write in a book we've now got somebody who was very generous wanted to hear everybody's opinion wanted to listen to it and wasn't influenced by it and there's al- there's almost a con you know it's almost a contradiction there but we can st- i'm sure it just came out in a natural way um We'll come back to, to, to maybe some of the good and bad things that have happened with leadership. I want to get into the meat of this. Um, when we spoke about contingency and continuity planning and emergency response, that seems a right mouthful. What does that mean? What is it?
1: I, I suppose, in a nutshell, it is um, responding to adverse incidents, so things that go wrong. And when you're responding at that kind of community level, these are big things that have gone wrong. So anything from a severe weather incident, which is kind of your run of the mill stuff. So heavy snow, flooding, um, tornadoes, that kind of thing, through to um, less less common but possibly higher impact events like civil unrest um, or terrorism threats or health emergencies like we're facing at the moment. So the, the kind of the first bit is responding to that and keeping a community safe um, and managing the, the impact. The other side of it is um, making sure that you can get back to as close to business as normal, business as usual, as quickly as possible, so that the interruption to service um, is, is minimised. It's, it's always trying to balance this response to an incident with continuity of service because generally in the, old, the environments i was in we were providing essential services at the same time so healthcare, we were um education um making sure that the trash was being collected making sure that you know public health and safety basically it's, it's all those kind of small things you
0: know Again, it's interesting. We're talking about ancillary services during big, big thing. I want to let's dig deep into these um, because all of them are, are are very relevant in New York, without a doubt, um, they bit relevant throughout the world. I was working in in Australia um, just before the pandemic came. Um, great idea to come back to New York from one of the safest countries of the world. But they've just gone through. They were just beginning to open back up after the, you know, the, the nationwide bushfires. And all of a sudden, the pandemic hits. And it's these uncertain things that happen, the things we can't really predict. So talk, talk to me about, here's the thing. One of the things that, that, that's uh, top of the news this week, civil unrest. Tell me through, what, what's been your experience there? Um. Personal experience there was
1: uh, we had in the area where I worked, uh, we were hosting one of the G8 conferences. So where all the major leaders of the world come together and have their um, economic discussions. Uh, That bit was the easy bit. So it was it was just about having a venue for that and it being policed.
0: Sorry, but you yeah. would think that that would be the difficult part. You've got some of the, some of the biggest leaders, the, the most famous leaders, the most influential leaders in the world. You would think that would be the tough part. It wasn't?
1: It, it, it's tough from the point of view. You need to set it all up. So you need to set up the safety and the security. And the planning of it goes. it is phenomenal. I mean, it's about a year in advance to do the planning for something like that. But that is actually the easy bit because it's contained and you know it. You understand it. It's a finite thing. The bit that the rest of us were left to manage was everything that went on around it. Um, and for us, the everything that went on around it was, um, at that time, there was a lot of, this was a, around the time of kind of the Occupy Wall Street type um, okay. protesting. Um, I can't remember if it was exactly that one, but it was that type of protesting that was yep. going on. Um, and because it was in our patch, everybody who wanted to protest also came to our patch. And they they did what they could to disrupt, and we had to manage the can, disruption.
0: Can I you, what kind of things? What kind of thing? What do you mean by disrupt?
1: Um, they uh, managed to block off all of the the, the the motorways, the freeways around our area, so that no transport could move.
0: The big roads.
1: The big roads. Yeah. The big, the big road.
0: roads. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so no transport could move. Um, so that anybody that was trying to get to work was stuck, anybody who's trying to get to hospital was stuck. Um, there, was, there, there were roaming protests, so, um, and there were concerns about would those turn violent or not. Some of, them, some of them did. Most of them didn't. But regardless of whether they did or they didn't, we were still thinking about how do we manage the impact of that on our community? How do we make sure that people who need to get to essential services still can? How do we make sure that um, ambulances, fire trucks can get through to where they need to be that may be completely unrelated to the protest? Because so the us, world
0: still the, the world still happens around yes, it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what we were managing was actually the unpredictable side of it. But we knew that some of the impacts could were likely to be around disruption to normal to everyday life and everyday services.
0: How do you balance that when when you're in a position of authority organizing in and, and, and coordinating this and making sure the right people are in the right place, how do you balance people's right for a voice, people's right to actually protest and 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 have that freedom of speech, whilst it might disrupt somebody's health, it might disrupt some you know it, it might have a seriously adverse effect on someone else. And getting that message over is not always easy. How do you handle that? Um, so, the, it,
1: it, it is a really difficult balance. Um, one of the things that, you're, that we learn to do whenever you take charge of an incident like that is set out your overall objective. Um, and for us, the overall objective was not to, to stop discussion and protest. It was to minimise the impact of it on the community, which means you tackle it in a different way. If you want to stop the protest, you go in heavy-handed and you just contain and corral it. If you want to minimise the impact, you're trying to to negotiate with the people who are protesting to make sure you have routes and access routes to essential services remaining open, Um, and or you're you're trying to contain the protest in particular areas. Um, One of the roles that that we took was very much about that communication line between um, the the services, you know, ourselves as the organisation was trying to continue services and manage for the community, and the protesters themselves. So we were trying to keep that dialogue going. And for us, dialogue was a really important part. You know, just talking to each other was a really important part of being able to manage
0: the situation well. I'm curious, where's the point? Who makes that decision that, OK, it's it's got to stop now, it's gone too far, or that's just enough? What, What... what's the thought process behind that Can you give some insight um at the end of the day
1: it, it is one person's decision uh, and that's actually a really important part of managing any situation like that because you cannot afford to have multiple decision making but the decision needs to be made taking multiple voices and views into account um so it's the best um Emergency and crisis response are managed on a multi-agency basis with all of the different perspectives in the room. Well, when, Unless, what would just, just,
0: just so everybody's clear, what's multi-agency? What do you mean? By um,
1: so you would have the local government organisation, you would have health, you would have um, the you'd have the police in there as well. You'd probably have fires. you'd have the various different first responders, the various different public um, agencies. So the city council. Um, the hospitals, the community health services, the the paramedic services, EMT services. So you'd have all of those people in so that we're able to actually share our perspectives, our intelligence and also our um, priorities and we can then combine those together to make the right decision in the
0: circumstances. Well, just before we go to commercial break, just, just give us a little bit of insight. What did you see? What was your thoughts on just everything that was happening, what did it trigger in you? You know, as somebody who's been in, these, in, in this situation, when you saw lots and lots and lots of different types of approach to what would be regarded as civil unrest, um, to the protest, that type of thing over the last week, what, what did it trigger?
1: Um, how difficult those decisions can be um, and also not letting... Not letting any one view from a response perspective override.
0: Uh, and I think uh, it's
1: that thing about balance.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of the things, we again, we're going to talk about after the break, you spoke about bias. And my guess is it would be really easy for bias to, to be a huge influence on someone making a decision on something like this. And it must be really difficult just keeping keeping the, the, the perspective as wide as possible. Yeah, Um Thank you. So we're going to go to a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to have a look at just some of the other areas. You know, the, the, the terrorism, health emergencies, and severe weather, which is you know which is here, and just what the differences are in approach, and maybe how does this lead into just almost every business, everyday business life? What should business leaders be thinking about from your experience? Because I know you work with them. What did, what can they take from something like this? So we'll just take two minutes, go to commercial, and be straight back.
4: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day.
0: The uh, Mind Behind Leadership with uh, Graham Dobbin, our guest today, Rebecca Maxwell. I can see Rebecca dancing. I'm sure Sam is still dancing to a theme tune, our producer, uh, back in the studios. Um, We're live from New York, and we're talking leadership. We're talking emergency planning. We're talking about contingency and continuity. What happens when the major incidents happen? How complex are they? So we've already spoken about civil unrest and your work at the G8 conference. Um, you mentioned severe weather terrorism health emergencies talk us through some of you've got really really a cheerful subjects tonight. talk us through just some of the, some of the things you know terrorism
1: yeah that was um luckily that wasn't a terrorism incident that we had to deal with ourselves but it was the the aftermath and the continued threat after the um after the unfortunate bombing in um, Manchester, the Ariana Grande concert, um, there was a significantly heightened level of alert beyond that. Um, and we needed to prepare for it.
0: How does something that, so I know you were working roughly, what, about 40 miles away from Manchester at the time. Right? The Ariana Grande concert, I mean, that hit worldwide news, global news. How does, when you're not directly affected, it, what then happens, what kicks in? And what do you need to do to maybe keep your people safe there? Um, one of the interesting things is once you've been
1: trained in how to deal with a, an emergency response, it, it's almost like your brain just automatically kicks into gear. And I find it doing that during, the, during this pandemic as well. So I guess as soon as um, that incident happened, and with it being so close, um, I automatically started thinking, what do we need, what do we need to think about So where have we got that could be a target? What kind of threat might we face? Um, Luckily, again, we don't do this on our own. um, And it's about pooling intelligence and pooling knowledge. And that's actually one of the really critical things in any kind of um, incident and any kind of crisis situation is pooling the intelligence, because no one person has it all. Um, And one of the hardest things to do is actually to make decisions when you don't know all of the facts. and the bit that we were talking about earlier as well, about how to trust the facts that you think you know.
0: Talk me through, what does that mean?
1: Um, you can get into, there's well-known kind of psychological things that go on around thinking and decision-making, and they're, they're worse during the pressure of a crisis event. So um, it's really easy to go for confirmation bias, so to only see the information that supports the view you've already formed. Or to get caught up in groupthink of everybody else is saying this, so therefore I agree with it as well. Um, and again, part of the training when you're um, learning how to manage this sort of incident is to have techniques that help you step back and say, OK, how, how much can I trust this new piece of information? Does it change or does it confirm? And who else can give me something that
0: maybe helps to, um, to either prove or disprove it? Um, I'm really interested just the thought process so that's the process that we go through to kind of make the good decisions mm-hmm. and one of the words I was aware I said it um, was how do we keep our team safe and how do you keep yourself safe and I don't mean physically safe from terrorism attack I mean safe that people know that they, they can make decisions that they don't get overwhelmed with things what, what how do you do that
1: Yeah, this whole thing about safety and resilience, I'm glad you raised that because, again, it's something that's actually not well understood about managing in uncertain times. You know, if we take it at that wider sense. And the the kind of things you want to keep yourself safe around are that uh, we should never underestimate the adrenaline rush of dealing with um, Mm -hmm. an incident. And it can actually be quite addictive and it keeps us going. And it's a great thing from that point of view, but we can become, we can burn out if we're not careful. And one of the things that um, we need to be really careful about, you know, whether we're leading a response or whether we're involved in a a situation, a period of uncertainty, like we find ourselves now, it can be really easy not um, not to recognize the symptoms of we're doing too much. This takes extra energy. Um, and actually just allowing downtime um, and, and kind of being kind to ourselves that we, we, we can't go 100 miles an hour all the time. So, so that kind of resilient side is part of it. And actually, one of the hardest things I had to do uh, in managing an incident was send somebody home who'd already been working 18 hours and wanted to carry on. And they were determined that they were fit to carry on. And they possibly could have done for another hour or so, but they would have fallen over at that point. And out of respect to them, because they needed their rest, but also selfishly from a response point of view, I needed them back the next day. So I actually had to take the decision, you go home now. And a leader being able to do that and say, right, no, I can see what's going to happen next. We need to to make a decision here and now that you might not think is the right decision, but I'm, I'm, my judgment is that it is, and I take responsibility for
0: it. It sounds like there's like, there's so many different things. When we think about dealing with the incident, but the incident is probably, for example, you mentioned the G8. The incident is about getting getting all the leaders into one place in a safe safe area. That's probably one of the easier things because everything's done. It's Everything else is uncertain. So if you've got a terrorist incident, it, it's normally contained or it's happened. It's uncertain what's well, not going to happen. And then how you deal with not just the public, because my guess, we're not even spoken about how you dealt with the public, but dealing with your own team who had to deal with the public mm-hmm. when they're thinking about family members, all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to kind of mix this in, because I know one of the things that you, that you were also involved with, we think about health emergencies, was the swine flu epidemic.
1: Yeah, we were, we had, as when I was working in Scotland, um, and we had the first case of swine flu in the UK um, in, appeared wow. in our area. So we were the very first place that needed to put in place isolation and quarantine. Um, we were very lucky that it was um, tracked, traced and contained quickly, but we didn't know that at the time.
0: So it was tracked, traced and contained. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah, but we didn't know that at the time, so we still had to plan for um, the people who were... Responding immediately, how do we keep them safe? So how do we make sure they have got protective equipment and protective procedures? Um, But also, how do we manage if this is not contained and we start to see impact in the community? Um, So how do we help our colleagues in health manage a a surge in service demand? But also, how do we we manage ourselves when our workforce might be reduced by 25, 30, 40 percent?
0: Be- so because these are affected Ill- are there yeah. which again yeah. we've seen we've seen with through the police force in the NYPD, we've seen through the MTA just just how many people have been affected recently in the impact and some okay
3: mm-hmm.
0: and again I suppose when when people are watching their colleagues become ill then there's a psychological effect on them absolutely yeah
1: so um, communication. Um, we hardly even talked about communication. Is such a critical part of managing these kind of uncertain situations. You know, whatever actually, whatever scale they are, um, and it's communication internally so that everybody knows what each other's doing. Communication from a reassurance perspective, and also communication externally with you know whether that's your customers or your community, making sure that they know what's happening. Um, again, sometimes, um, in some instances, one of the hardest things to manage is um, the generosity of a community who wants to help and how do you coordinate all of, their,
0: all of their offers of help. Give us an idea. What kind of things do people want to do? Do they want to bake cakes or make cups of tea or something like that? What, what is it?
1: That they want to be able to, to be out doing something, so um, be out volunteering to help a housebound neighbour, uh, they may want to donate goods. They may want to provide um, gifts. You know, if it was uh, we had a flooding incident um, and uh, it there was a, a lot of kids lost their toys as a result of the flooding incident. So people want to donate things. Um, and that is great because we'd never have the resources to replace, but it also creates a logistical headache of how do you manage that? How do you warehouse it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was a few weeks ago, I was uh, I was getting involved. I was about to get involved with helping to build the second field hospital here in New York, and we got called off the night before. And I wanted to help. I wanted to be in there, and I was almost disappointed the night before until I actually realised what it meant. It meant that we didn't need the beds. So it was a good thing, mm. but they show that that personal. And desire to go out and do something mm-hmm. was really, really strong. Um, yeah,
1: and and also, how do we, um, you know, we are also thinking about how do we allow people to help without putting themselves in danger? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in your situation, the people organising it would be thinking about: we have volunteers coming to help. How do we make sure that they are not put at risk? Um, I can remember dealing with um, flooding incidents where we had severe. Um, it was a it was the sea. It was a tidal flooding, so it was the sea broke through flood defences, and we had to be really careful that our um, maintenance crews weren't putting themselves in danger as they tried to protect the rest of the community. Again, really difficult thing to manage when people
0: just want to help. Just, just quickly before we go to a commercial break, you've talked about all these things through health, through civil unrest. We've seen it. What have you seen that's been really? Good. Now, one of the things that we picked up on was communication. Um, where have you seen people that have done, just you know in the final minute or so before we, we, we go to a break, what have you seen that's been good and what do you see that's, that's actually caused a problem just purely because of communication?
1: Um, I, I think there's been two stunning examples of communication. You've mentioned one in terms of Jacinda Ahern um, and her ability to not just communicate clearly, but to communicate with compassion. Um, she did a lovely piece around Easter to apologise to the kids for why they had to stay at home and they couldn't go out and do their Easter egg hunt. And she assured them that she'd given dispensation for the Easter bunny to visit all of their houses. Now, that shows a level of compassion and understanding, which is just mind-blowing. The other end of the spectrum, to an extent, in terms of good communication but very different style, is the firmness that um, Governor Cuomo's had in New York is yeah. his willingness just to stand up and say, you might not like the decision, but it's my decision and somebody has to make
0: it. Yeah, that, and that was one, one of the things that struck out, not going into the politics of, of mm. it, which, you know, I'm, I'm failing you in New York, so I'm, I don't need to get there. But just listening to someone saying, this is my decision and I stand by it, seemed to give a level of comfort. Yeah, so the clarity of the message, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you're listening to The Mind Behind Leadership with Graham Dobbin. My guest is Rebecca Maxwell. We're live from New York City this evening on this gorgeous evening. We're going to head for a commercial break. When we come back uh, for the final section, of this, I'm going to really dig into how do we spot leaders? How do we help to develop other people? What, what, what are we looking for in others? And what does this actually mean to maybe business owners, everything that we've been speaking about this evening? In a few minutes,
2: talking alternative radio 24 hours a day.
6: I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95% fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com.
3: Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?
2: talkingalternative.com
0: to the mind behind leadership Graham Dobbin here with um, Rebecca Maxwell Rebecca let's go for just uh, let's just go for some quick fire stuff here okay, I can see you looking worried already um, what's the what's, you've had leadership roles what's the one that stood out that you think I wish I'd never done that
5: um
1: you know, I can't think of one. They've all—I mean, that's a really
0: kind of, very diplomatic.
1: They're very diplomatic. They've all brought some very
0: good show of leadership there. Great diplomacy. <laughs> so you can't think of anything that, that you know you think that just that actually had a negative effect. On.
1: Um, I don't think any have had a negative effect. Some have been harder than others. Okay. Um, managing teams who just really didn't want to engage is is hard. Sometimes working with colleagues who. Maybe I was out of alignment with. Sometimes that's hard as well. I've been fortunate that that's never been entire
0: roles, and it's never been for long. You could do a whole show on alignment, how you pull people together, and everything like that. So, when have you been over When have you gone? Oh my goodness, I'm here. Was it the GA? Was it the swing Was it what was it?
1: Um, the one that springs to mind is uh, presenting to the chancellor. Of the Exchequer, so the Secretary of the Treasury in the US. Okay. In the in the Prime Minister's private office in Parliament in Westminster. That was that was quite overawing. Particularly I find myself I came last into the room and I find myself sat directly opposite him.
0: Okay, wow. And this was in the Prime Minister's office?
1: It was, yeah. Yeah.
0: So the equivalent of the Oval Office? Yes. Okay. Anything else about that office?
1: Um, what else about it? Oh, yeah, the, the Winston Churchill's desk's still in there, apparently.
0: It was Winston Churchill. I didn't realise you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> How you, what, what's the difference in leadership that you see from the UK to the US? I know you've moved, you moved to the US a couple of years ago, and you're, you're working with leadership teams here. What kind of things are just slightly different? What's nuanced them? that? That's a really tough question because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure
1: that there are subtle differences in culture, I think, between the US and the UK. There's definitely differences in language. That's caught me out a few times. Um, <laughs> You'll
4: take me as well.
1: <laughs> um, but in terms of leadership, is there a difference? I'm not sure that there is a difference. I think at heart, leadership is the same the world
0: over. Um, so if I was to ask you if leadership's the same the world over if I was asked you to throw out three or four words you know three or four things that just show great leadership that would be maybe a trait of what, what first comes to mind
1: um, I think the word that we used earlier generosity
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, so the the generosity inclusiveness, whichever way you want to kind of take that one um, I think conviction mm-hmm. Um, in terms of being um, standing up for not necess- not just what you believe in but what you stand for, that you stand up for what you stand for, if you see what I mean so you don't kind of say this is important and then your actions belie it so it's actually the follow through um, um, I think the one of the worst leaderships we can see is when there's a disconnect between I say that my staff are important, but I do nothing to actually demonstrate that importance. So that kind of conviction follows through authenticity. Um, and I, I don't know how many words I've given you so far, but compassion is the other one. You
0: give me <laughs> two. You do give me two. I thought compassion would be there because you mentioned you mentioned it just a little while ago about Easter eggs. But how does compassion show up when we're when we're not dealing with kids and Easter eggs?
1: Um. It's, for me, compassion is about, I suppose, respect. It's mm-hmm. respecting the, the differences that we all have, whether that's a difference of um, <laughs> where we come from, what we believe in, or what our experiences have been. Um, there's a quote that's going around at the moment I've come across a few times during the pandemic. Oh, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And I think great leaders understand that. Um, and are able to uh, respect that difference of experience and then start to really question themselves about what does that mean and what does that therefore mean about how I need to behave and if you're in a, I was going to say if you're in a public service, but I think actually if you're in any service, what does that mean for the people I'm serving and how do I need to, equality is not about treating everybody the same. It's about treating everybody according to their circumstance and experience. I and mean, for me, that's compassion and leadership.
2: Okay.
0: And one final one. So we've got generosity, conviction, compassion. Um, Do you know what? Have you got one? I
1: was going to say clarity. So um, being able to communicate a clear message so that people know what we're doing, where we're going, being able to um, have clarity of thought. So to be able to see through all of the fog at times and pick out the most important things to focus on. I think that's all quite often a leader's role. Um, and clarity of vision. So to not be distracted by what goes on around us um, and stay true to what we're actually trying to achieve. So that that longer term
0: longer-term perspective. How do you spot those traits in maybe somebody younger? How does somebody spot those traits in a young Rebecca? How does somebody spot those traits in someone coming through?
1: Um. First off, give people the opportunity to show them. So um, allow people to demonstrate initiative, um, to put forward ideas, ideas, um, Luckily, I think it's rarer these days to have very top-down management styles. Um, So leadership, which encourages um, anybody in the organisation to demonstrate initiative, to come forward with ideas and to to be able to contribute, uh, is really what leadership in our modern times is about because no one person can have all the answers. Um, you You and I have talked separately about the kind of the... The speed of change and the uncertainty that there is not just in a um, in an emergency situation, but actually in our lives every day, Um, and it feels like that is more these days. So for leaders, leaders of organisations now need to be able to harness multiple views and be humble enough to know that they're not the smartest guy in the room.
0: an enormous shift for me when I realized that I didn't need to be the smartest guy in the room when I went to train. and it was always unlikely I would be, but actually just being comfortable with that, that I didn't need to be, made such a huge difference. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Just just really quickly, in the last couple of minutes, what advice would you give to businesses now thinking about your experience in all these uncertain times with some of the biggest incidents, and now we're going to have this massive change coming up were people coming back into the, some kind of normality? What would you give them?
1: Um, I think it's don't wait for there to be perfect information before you make decisions. And don't expect there to be to know all of the facts. So to, to know what you know, to be clear about what you know, to be clear about what you don't know, and from that work out, is it something you don't know but somebody else does and therefore go and find out? or is it something you don't know and you don't think anybody else does so which way do you think it's going to go we're getting it's into known knowns it's and unknown like <laughs> known. it's
0: one of those quizzes that comes on Facebook every time what don't you know and what do you don't, don't you know um, it, it, I mean we we'll joke about it but actually it's, I think it's a key strength for,
1: for or a key skill for business owners at the moment is to work out what you do know and what you don't know and from what you don't know what can you find out and what are you going to have to guess and then using that information to make your best guess at the next decision that you need to make. But be clear about the assumptions you made when you made that decision. For me, that's 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 how you manage in this kind of uncertain
0: environment. And my guess is that's something that you do with leaders on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, been doing that a lot at the moment, helping business owners reset.
0: Rebecca Maxwell, thank you for your insights. Thank you for coming in and giving us a some indication of just kind of what happens um, elsewhere and how that, that, that makes into good business. And uh, thank you for putting up with my uh, questions. We are in the mind behind leadership. Our guest today has been Rebecca Maxwell. We will be back again next Thursday evening at 7pm with me, Graham Dobbin. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at sports and the military and political leadership. Just... What's the nuances behind that? And what can we take from that for all of our businesses? Thanks for joining in. Look forward to seeing you again.
4: Hey, all you crazy listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at
3: Are you a conscious co-creator?
5: Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.